University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome sports fans, welcome statistics fans, welcome business fans, welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. Some combination of myself, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, and Cade Massey here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM 132. This happens to be one of those unique shows where I'm the only one in town. This is spring break week here at the University of Pennsylvania, but that provides even a greater opportunity for you, the caller, to, if you'd like, co-host with me, talk with me, tell me what's going on in your mind, tell me what's going on in sports. I can talk to you about it. It's very easy to do. Please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. If you want, you can also tweet at us at W Moneyball, or you can send a question to our producer Matt Datz at Business Radio at SiriusXM.com. So as I said, this is one of those unique times where I get to, you know, normally we have our first half hour of what caught our eye in sports. Um, I'm the one that usually watches the most sports on the show, and so I can just talk about what's caught my eye and talk to myself about it. But of course, again, you can join the conversation at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. 942 For those of you that are NBA fans, obviously it was a huge weekend for the Los Angeles Lakers. That was really the big deal to me in basketball this weekend. Um, obviously, for those people that don't know, they first played the Milwaukee Bucks on Friday night, who have the best record in the NBA. They This was both at home, well, sort of at home. The first one, they beat the Milwaukee Bucks at home by about 10 points. It was a great win. Uh, LeBron sort of outplayed Giannis in some ways. As a matter of fact, covering him a lot of the game, that was a big win. The second game was actually, it was still in the same stadium, but it was a Clippers home game. They then beat the Clippers on Sunday, and those were thought of as the, first of all, they hadn't beaten either of those teams. Those were the two teams that uh, people think they may face either in the finals or in the Western Conference finals for the Clippers and then the finals for the Bucks. Um, as I tweeted at W Moneyball, um, it was playoff LeBron James. It was, um, I don't think I've ever seen him play better on both sides of the court. Um, but there was something during that, game, a stat that was put up on the screen that struck my eye, which caught my eye, that uh, which made me think, um, this is probably about five or ten minutes worth of discussion on Wharton Moneyball. So they had put up on the screen during the Laker game that the Lakers were 41-0 and when leading going into the fourth quarter. Now they're 42-0. and Now I got a little worried because when I woke up this morning, I had watched the first half of the game. I saw that the Lakers lost to the Nets last night, and I was like, oh, God, the streak is broken. But actually, no, the Lakers were losing going into the fourth quarter of that game. Um, they ended up losing the game, so that streak is still at 42-0. and But then I started to think, I'm a statistician, how rare is that? So then I started to think, how could you figure that out? And so I started to think, well, there's probably lots of ways to do it. So let me list some for you, the fans. And again, if you want to tweet at us, if you want to call and provide how you might think about it, please do. The first you could do is to say, okay, obviously they've got a 100% winning percentage. One thing you could do is you can compare their winning percentage to all the other teams and see how exceedant, if you'd like, is their winning percentage. Now, a lot of times we compute exceedances by saying, let's take the distribution of all other teams and see how extreme there is. Well, 42-0, and you can't be more extreme. So we know for a fact, if we look at the 30, 30 NBA teams, they have to be 30 out of 30. So that's not going to help us just from that perspective. What we can look at is, for example, how close is the second closest team in their win percentage going into the fourth quarter? That would be another interesting way to look at it. We could look at the average of the other teams. That would be another interesting way to look at it. 
But then I started to think of some more sophisticated ways to look at it. So one way you could think about it is right now the Lakers for the season have about a plus seven, seven and a half point win percentage, uh, win uh, point differential in their games. And so another way you could think about it is, so what would be, with a team with a plus seven and a half, what would be the chances that they would go 42 and 0? Because if I told you that they had a plus 20 at the end of the game, you would say, well, that's not that surprising. So another thing you could do is condition on this, what we call ancillary or auxiliary statistic. That would be another way to do it. Um, another way you could do it would be to just simulate. So you could take all of those games that they played, all 42, see where they were at, and you could simulate those games forward and see how many simulations it would take to get 42-0 and in all of them. That might give you some sort of rareness probability. Because another challenge you're going to have is no matter what calculation you do, you're not going to get something more extreme than 42-0. and As a matter of fact, you may never get exactly 42-0. and So how many simulations would you have to do to even match what they did? I think the one that I like the best is probably to take, let's imagine you were watching the games on ESPN, and actually it's a wonderful thing on my uh, screen now. My 14-year-old son, Ben, showed me this. If I hit this right button on my Xfinity remote, it shows me not only a lot of the stats during the game, but it also shows me the win probabilities during the game. So imagine you took the Lakers' win probabilities in all of those games that they were losing. Now, let's make an assumption that they're probably not better than 50% in most of those games. Some of them they still could be, because let's remember, let's say they're playing some really bad team like the Golden State Warriors this year and they're down by one going into the fourth quarter don't assume that their win probability is not over 50 percent that's probably still over 50 percent but you could take the exceedant number of wins in other words let's say they win a game where they only had a win percentage of 40 percent well that's an exceedance of 0.6 you could add that up over all 42 games and see in some sense how many extra wins did they have compared to the win probability so to me, um, I just found, first of all, I found that statistic 42-0 and 0 remarkable. Um, I'd love to look at historical averages, like what is the best a team has ever done going into the fourth quarter. But I think what it shows you is something that is, is important, is that at the end of the day, a lot of these playoff games that the Lakers are obviously going to face coming forward, they're going to come down to the last two minutes. And here's what we know. Um, we know LeBron... Anthony Davis, Rajon Rondo, they're going to be able to close games. And the fact that they're 42-0 and when winning going into the fourth quarter, and I believe this has to be something they know, I think also that has to be just a, a massive psychological advantage for them. So I was just thinking it was an interesting topic for Wharton Moneyball. Um, again, you could compute just the average wing loss of others to see how rare it is. You could look back historically. Matter of fact, the interesting historical part is some team is all. This is what we talk about all the time on Wharton Moneyball. Some team is going to have some extreme statistic. I mean, that's the way it works. If you take 30 teams and you say you pick a statistic like leads when going into the fourth quarter, someone's going to have a very large number that looks like an exceedance. Well, let's do that historically every year. Let's look at the last 40 years in the NBA. Let's look at the maximum win-loss percentage going into the fourth quarter of any team and compare the Lakers to that number. And that, to me, would be really interesting. In other words, is their maximum greater than the maximum from other seasons? Would be a fun, actual thing to look at. So that was kind of my first caught-my-eye in Wharton Moneyball. Um, the thing that's kind of, I'll call it the corollary to that, I also looked at an interesting stat. So there are three teams in the NBA right now 
that basically have the same uh, point differential, which means if we take their average point scored, you know, if they lose by 10, that's a minus 10. If they win by 8, that's a plus 8. So let's take all roughly 60, 65 games that the team has played and compute their average point differential. There are three teams right now with essentially the same point differential. Um, Those are the Dallas Mavericks, who at least going into last night's game were a plus 6.1, the LA Clippers, who are a plus 6.3, and the Toronto Raptors, who are plus 6.4. I mean, let's agree that 6.1, 6.3, and 6.4 are pretty darn close. As a matter of fact, you know, if a team won another game by five or six points, that would add a significant amount to their point differential. Well, if you won by six more over 60 games, that would add one-tenth of a point to your point differential. So let's, let's, let's consider those roughly equivalent. Well, here's the part that's interesting. Um, the Raptors are 45 and 18 going into last night's game, and the Mavericks are 39 and 26. So these are two teams with the same point differential who basically have an eight-game difference in wins. So when we start talking about a team like the Lakers who can close games, if you're the Mavericks and you're sitting there at 39 and 26, by the way, I watched the end of the Mavericks game. Let's call them 39 and 27 because they lost last night's game. Again, this is a team that you say, well, they have Luka Doncic, they have Kristaps Porzingis. Um, It's clear that they're still a young team. There are they are having difficulty closing games, and the reason I related that to the forty-two and O statistic, besides it says something about the ability of someone to close games, it also conditions on a statistic. I'm conditioning on the point differential. So let's consider those teams roughly equivalent. Then why has one team, the Raptors or the Clippers, have six or eight more wins than the Mavericks, given they've basically scored the same number of points and given up the same number of points on a differential basis? I think it was just something interesting to look at and something you and the listeners can always look at. Again, this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. Uh, We're here on Wharton Moneyball, the show, my favorite two hours of the week where sports statistics and business collide. If you want to join the conversation, uh, please call me at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. If you also have a question for our producer, Matt Datz, please email him at businessradio at SiriusXM.com, or you can always tweet us at WMoneyball. Um, while we're on the NBA, I might as well stick with the NBA a little bit. Um, I'm still amazed at how poorly... My team, our team, if you'd like, the Philadelphia 76ers, since I'm sitting here at the University of Pennsylvania, I have to consider Penn my team, uh, uh, the Sixers my team. The Sixers are still miraculous at home. Matter of fact, they're the best home team in the NBA by far. They are 28-2, and two, which is just for those people historically. I know, actually, I happen to know this stat. Well, I happen to know lots of meaningless stats, but I happen to know this one. Um, no team has ever gone undefeated at home in the NBA, but the Boston Celtics, I believe it was 85-86, uh, went 41-1 and at home. I know that the, the the best home record ever was the Boston Celtics. I think it was 85-86. It might have been 87-88, but they were 41-1 and at home. Uh, the Sixers, I don't know that they're going to go 40-39-2 and uh, 39 and two at home, but uh, they're also 10-24 and 24 on the road. So that, to me, is just remarkable. The fact that they're 10-24 and 24 on the road and 28-2 and 
at home. The only thing I can say that's good news is at least they have four more home games remaining than they do road games, so that's a nice thing. But the fact that they're that much of a differential, matter of fact, thanks to my producer, Matt Datz. And Matt, not only was I correct that it was 40-1, and one, but I had the season correct. It was the 85-86 Celtics. Uh, I also see you, you put up there that the 15-16 Spurs were 40-1 and one at home. So again, um, the Sixers are having a really good season at home, but really poor on the road. And so now I started to think why. And actually, um, you know, I should always mention that obviously we're sitting here at the University of Pennsylvania where obviously all of us are concerned about the coronavirus. And it actually, let me tell you in my bizarre way of thinking why this relates to this stat. Okay, and but but stay with me, fans here for a minute. This is why it relates to this stat. So one argument for home court advantage or home field advantage in any sport is that the fans. So you're a referee. You get caught up in the game. The Sixers are exciting at home. Maybe it's one or two calls that you make in the Sixers' favor. It's a charging foul versus a blocking foul. It's a technical foul versus not a technical foul. It's a goaltending versus not. Uh, to traveling versus not, whatever the play might be. But you're not doing it intentionally. You're just doing it unintentionally. But maybe that leads to a two- or three-point difference in the game. Well, then I started to think, let's think about the coronavirus for a second. And this, to me, might be the greatest natural experiment in sports. Now, let me say what I mean by natural experiment. Well, first, let me say what I mean by experiment. If you were going to run an experiment to understand the role of home court, here's what you might consider doing. Take a bunch of home games and randomly assign it where some of the home games there are no fans and other home games there are fans. Now let's think about what this would give you. Because remember, being the home team has lots of advantages. You're sleeping at home. You're practicing at home. You know, your family's around you. You, all the, you better sleep. All the things that you have that go with it. But think about the experiment, the thought experiment, as they describe it, the Gedanken experiment. It's not an experiment you'd ever run, but you can think about running this experiment. Imagine you could randomly assign teams to at home to have a crowd or not have a crowd. Well, that would be an experiment. Then you could compare the point differential, the win-loss percentage. I think Adi Weiner has told us all the time that for the NBA, it's like 53-47% or maybe 56-44 home versus away. Well, we could now measure this for when you have the crowd at home versus when you don't have the crowd at home. Now, that's an experiment. That means you, the person that is interested in this, did the random assignment. But now let's think about the coronavirus. Let's imagine, it turns out, and this, by the way, this may happen. Matter of fact, I was just talking to our assistant producer, Zach Drapkin, before the show started. We were talking about, will the University of Pennsylvania remove, uh, you know, not have classes live, maybe everything online? I'll get to that in a second. But imagine now you have a bunch of NBA games where sometimes now the home team, because of an exogenous reason. Now, here's what I mean by exogenous. The reason they wouldn't have people in the fans has nothing to do with, well, it's a game that the Lakers are playing the Warriors, and that's going to be a blowout. Therefore, we won't put people in the stands because they're not going to be interested. Well, you can't do that because then you wouldn't get the true effect. You get a, what's called a bias or self-selected effect. It could turn out if they end up playing NBA games without teams there, without fans there, this could end up being a really great thing from a statistical perspective. Now, let me comment. 
I'm not saying it's good from a health perspective. I'm not saying it's good from an NBA perspective. I'm just saying it would be a way to break the confound of is it the fans that are there that are creating the home court advantage or is it sleeping at home? Well, if I remove one of them, so to me, that's why I was very, very interested in the in the coronavirus in terms of its effect on the NBA and games. And by the way, do not be surprised if we see Home games in baseball, for example, I think they just announced in Seattle that they're not going to have crowds greater than 250. I understand the Seattle Mariners don't draw a lot of people, but I'm pretty sure even the Seattle Mariners draw more than 250 people. So we may see MLB games being played without people in the in the stands. Well, let's see its impact. And again, this is what's called the natural experiment, and we do this all the time. Matter of fact, in my home field of marketing, I wonder what happens if Twitter is down for six hours. Okay, well, we can look at that six-hour period and see when people buy products or not. Or we could see when people watch certain news shows or not. These types of natural experiments are extremely valuable for people that want to try to uncover the me- what we call the mechanism behind something. So again, um, I thought it was interesting. Again, I'm still disturbed by the Sixers' ridiculously bad home record, a good home record versus away. I think last week, Adi and I computed that was something like four standard deviations away, which is an, un- I mean, it's an unheard of differential. Um, it may turn out that they end up, uh, you know, uh, Thirty-nine and two, or thirty-eight and three at home, and something like eleven and thirty, eleven and thirty on the road, which would just be absolutely unbelievable. Which would be just amazing. So that's kind of what caught my eye in sports. Let's call it in the NBA. Now let me move on to another sport, which we actually do talk about here on Wharton Moneyball quite a bit, but we, you know, it's only at maybe certain times of the year, and that's horse racing. So I'm sure everybody has seen the news. Well, if you're a sports junkie and sports statistics fan like I am here on Wharton Moneyball, um, obviously there's the big PED scandal in horse racing. And I started to wonder to myself, well, first of all, you know, what took them so long? But this, cause it's, this is kind of one of those known secrets, just like sign stealing and everything like that. Every, I think everybody knows. But I was just wondering... Like, why haven't the statisticians been calling foul on this for a very long time? And here's what I mean. Let's imagine you have a horse, a bunch of horses, and all of a sudden these horses start running their best times. All of these horses start running their best times. All of these tracks all of a sudden seem to be quote-unquote getting faster. All of a sudden, records start to be broken. All of a sudden, horses seem to recover faster, and in consecutive races, they're performing that's abnormal not just to the field as a whole, but abnormal to their previous history. Now, again, I I wrote an article, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago with Shane and Adi and another colleague on Roger Clemens. And again, you can't prove from statistics that someone's used PED or a horse has, has been on PED. But what you can do is you can actually identify what we call anomalous behavior. This horse's trajectory during the race. Remember, um, Jeff Cedar, who's our horse expert, has always told us, which is interesting. Um, every horse slows down during a race. Most people think he's charging to the pole. He's charging to the pole. No. This horse is just slowing down less than the other horses are slowing down. So this, to me, is fascinating. Let's imagine you started looking at the speed of a horse during a race, and you're like, wait a second here. All these horses, 
they don't seem to be slowing down during the race as much as you would expect. Or, wow, you know, that horse just ran last week. Now it's setting its personal best again. So to me, this is absolutely a statistical issue that one could look at. And I'm just surprised that I'm not surprised that it happened Uh, I'm not surprised that they called it out now that they have evidence, but I am surprised that statisticians, and you could imagine, um, there's no sport that's kind of, in my mind, more linked to betting than horse racing. Given that, and you have statisticians trying to get every edge possible, you would think that statisticians would have said, horse racing, something going on here. You know, everybody go look at this. And again, I want to comment, statistics doesn't prove anything in that way, but it can prevent a magnifying glass, a spotlight to say, you need to look at this horse. And another thing you could do is imagine it's a bunch of horses from the same trainer. Well, then again, so we we call that a cluster. In other words, what are the chances that, I don't know, I'll make it up, seven horses, 10 horses, 20 horses. Wow, they're all performing better. They're all not slowing down. They're all having their personal best. Wow, they're all winning races they weren't winning before. Oh, wait a second. What's the common factor? Oh, it's the same trainer. So, again, to me, um, the reason it caught my eye in sports is not because I'm the biggest horse racing fan in the world, although, let me just say, I do love a good horse race, but it was more what took us, the statisticians, so long to actually kind of call this out. And again, as I mentioned, it's the same as in baseball. That's what caught my eye 13 years ago when I started to notice that Roger Clemens had what we called a double-humped career, which is during his time with the Red Sox, if you think on the x-axis, let's have, let's say, his earned run average. Uh, sorry, time is on the x-axis. On the y-axis is his earned run average. You would notice that Roger Clemens kind of, you know, most pitchers take a while to get great. Then his earned run average started to drop. And then, as you notice, most pitchers in their early 30s, it started to go up because, you know, pitchers aren't as good in their mid-30s as they are in their early 30s to late 20s. So think of a U. Think of the letter U, down and then up. And then most people's career ends. Well, what happened to Roger Clemens is there was a second U. It started to go down again. And we looked at all pitchers who had pitched a certain number of innings, who had a career of similar length to Roger Clemens, and nobody, none, zero, had this double U-shaped. Now, again, we published this in the Statistics Journal. We didn't say Roger Clemens used PEDs. We didn't say that. All we said was his pitching trajectory on earned run average, on wins, on strikeout rate, it was an anomalous-shaped curve compared to other pitchers who had pitched for a similar amount of time. And so that's why when I was thinking of PED, I, I saw the horse racing one, and it made me think back to the article that I had written uh, in baseball uh, a number of years ago. So again, this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. I'm here on Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide here on Sirius XM 132. If you want to join the conversation, uh, Give me a call. Call me at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And again, please follow us uh, all the time on at W Moneyball. Um, Since I made a somewhat of a transition to baseball, um, there was also something that caught my eye. But this would be something that would catch my eye because of my age and the generation I was in than maybe some listeners uh, that didn't notice this. So I remember uh, for the last 20 years, I think it's finally ended that there was a day in baseball, I'll assume my producer Matt Datz, our assistant producer Zach, Zach Drapkin know this day, it was called Bobby Bonilla Day. 
Now, why was Bobby Bonilla Day so famous? Well, it was the day he got paid. You might say, well, what do you mean he got paid? Bobby Bonilla has been out of the major leagues, I don't know, 15, 20 years. What do you mean he got paid? Well, Bobby Bonilla had this contract where he basically, for like 20 or 25 years after he retired, he got something like $1.2, $1.3 million every year, and baseball executives started calling this Bobby Bonilla Day. In other words, he deferred some of his salary so that he would never have to worry about money and he'd be paid for like 25 more years. Well, it turns out we have a player that's just done that in baseball. Matter of fact, we've talked about this contract, and we've talked about how great a contract this is both for the player and for the team, and that's Christian Yelich of the Brewers, who, by the way, everybody puts in the top 10 players in baseball based on war. He's been that way for a couple of years now. Well, he just signed a $215 million contract, but he deferred $4 million a year of that contract so that between the ages of 39 and 50, he'll be paid $2.5 million every year. Now, you might say, why would he do that? Well, I could think of lots of reasons he would do that. So let's let's start. Let's just be a business school for a second since we're here at the Wharton School. Number one, um, they gave him a good interest rate. You know, I'll defer compensation right now. Give me a 15%, 20% interest rate. You can have a bunch of my money and give it to me in 10 years. With a, I mean, think about it as, you know, if you invest in a bond right now, I, I looked this morning, you get 0.7% interest, less than 1%. Put the money in a savings account. You might get two-tenths of 1%. If someone told you, you could take your salary, you're a young man, so you're not retiring tomorrow, you could take your salary and put it in an investment that guaranteed, by the way, ga- unless baseball goes out of business, guaranteed... 10%, 12% return. Most people would take that. The average stock market return, I'm sitting here at the Wharton School, my colleague Jeremy Siegel, stocks for the long run. Stocks historically average 7% and, of course, have risk associated with them. So if you consider this almost no risk, we call this a risk-free return, and they offer you 10%, 12%, everybody would take that. So um, that's the first reason you would do it. The second reason you would do it is um, the Brewers are a small market team. So you might imagine Christian Yelich saying, you know what, I want to play with better players because if we win, besides the money that I get when we make the playoffs, this will enhance my brand. I'm being a marketing professor for a second. So that's probably not a bad idea for him to do too. So now he's actually getting a good interest rate on his money. He's going to get better players around him. And by the way, what's going to happen when he gets better players around him? He's going to have better statistics. So that's he's going to be able to monetize that as well. So to me, um, I'm glad that I've lived to see a second. Now, now that Bobby Bonilla Day is gone, uh, Christian Yelich Day will be here in my household for when he turns 39 until he's 50. And I just thought it was a great, great thing for him to do. And again, I don't mean in any philanthropic, angelic sense. I just mean... It made business sense. It makes baseball sense because he wants to win, and uh, especially uh, for a small market team. The other thing that I noticed in baseball, and thanks, my producer Matt Datz always puts uh, kind of a, a sheet of you know the NBA, uh, NFL, all baseball, all kinds of stuff in front of me. Um, the other thing that caught my eye in baseball this week was that again we've talked about this a number of times, but. This is the projections, obviously we haven't played any baseball games yet in the 2020 season, of the regular season win totals. And I look at these again, and I still am shocked. 
So I see the Dodgers at 101.5 projected wins and the Yankees at 102.5. Now I started to think, how absurd is this? Now the Yankees did win more games than that last year. Uh, So did the Dodgers, or I think the Yankees may have won just about that number of games last year, and I think the Dodgers won a little bit more than that last year. So there's going to be some sort of, we talk about this all the time on Wharton Moneyball, you'd expect some sort of mean reversion. Now again, just quickly for our fans, what does that mean? Let's say you have a team that won, let's say the Yankees, that won 103 games last year. Thanks, thanks, Mac Dats, for putting it up on the screen. Um, The idea, and the Dodgers won 106. So let me say the good news. The first news is there's a little bit of mean reversion. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's say the Dodgers won 106. Let's take the Dodgers. My favorite equation in all of math, it's a simple equation. Observed equals truth plus error. So I'll say it again. Observed equals truth plus error. So observed for the Dodgers is 106. That's not their true wins. That's their observed wins. Their real strength, since they're, matter of fact, they won the most games in Bay or the second most in baseball, they're an extreme team, which means their error term must be must have been positive. So maybe the Dodgers were really only a 101, 102-win team, but five games just happened to randomly go their way. That error term won't carry over to the next season. That's why you have mean reversion. Notice, it also happens at the bottom. You win 50 games. Maybe that's your observed wins. Maybe your real strength was 55. So what you always notice is top teams revert inwards, Bottom teams revert inwards, meaning great teams don't become as uh, tend to win less games. Weak teams tend to win a little more games. But here, if I were a betting man, which sometimes I am, I'm going to have to find a way if I can parlay those two games, those two numbers, 101 and a half and 102 and a half. Here's what I would predict with high probability: one of those teams, at least one of those teams, will not make that number. I it just it just seems like an extraordinarily high number, and a, a number that again seems extremely low to me is the Astros, which is 95 and a half wins. So that number seems extraordinarily low to me. Given I understand the scandal that's going on, and that'll be a distraction, but this is a team that's routinely won well over 100 games the last few seasons. So obviously, a lot going on uh, in baseball. Maybe just in the last minute or two before we take a break, um, I'll say one other thing that kind of caught my eye in sports, and it really had to do with the NFL. Um, you know, again, the uh, the players are, are now voting on whether to uh, uh, vote in the new collective bargaining agreement. And I started to think about the role of the 17th game in injuries. And one of the things I'm I'm definitely going to talk about in the last half hour, so again, I'll have a guest in the next half hour and a guest in the next half hour after that. A lot of topics I'll talk about in the last half hour, including over-unders and stuff like that, is how could you forecast the injury rate for a 17th game? Now remember, we all do this in our jobs all the time. We've never played a 17th game in the NFL. So there's no way to know. We can't just say, well, let's look at the historical data. There is no historical data. So obviously, that's a big problem, and I'll definitely talk about it in the last half hour. So this has been the first half half hour of Wharton Moneyball. Please stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. Some combination of myself, Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, and Adi Weiner are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio. 
If you want to join the conversation, this is a call-in show. Please call us at 1-844-WARDEN. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also follow us on at WMoneyBall. So I always say, uh, even though I'm here in the studio myself today, I always said to my co-hosts that the greatest part of hosting Wharton Moneyball for the last six years have been the fact that we get to talk to a set of extraordinary guests, people that are both in the sports world and actually applying analytics, business concepts um, in the field, if you would like. And today's is no exception. Um, I'm honored to have Peter Fagan joining me. Peter is in his fifth season as president of the Milwaukee Bucks um, since taking over the team in October of 2014. Um, I think it's easy to say, all of us would say, he's rebuilt, re-energized the team's business operation, their attendance is off the charts, ticket revenue, merchandise revenue, TV viewership. And I think for any of us that know, um, they're the number one team in the NBA right now. So, Peter, this is Eric Bradlow. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Hey, thanks, Eric. Great to be on. So I have so many things to talk about, especially given just reading your bio and your background, which is a really interesting one. Um, Could you talk about, you know, a lot of people are like, wow, that would be my dream job. So could you tell us a little bit about your career path and how you ended up uh, with the Milwaukee Bucks and kind of what you did beforehand that might have prepared you for that? Yeah, I think career-wise, I've really been kind of a serial sales and marketing executive and then got an incredible operating experience. So I started my career at Six Flags Theme Park, one of those owned by Time Warner, um, up through the marketing and sales ranks. Uh, I moved to Madison Square Garden, where I, where I ultimately ran marketing um, for, the, for the sports teams. Uh, and then I took kind of a decade and helped build a company called Marquee Jet and Private Aviation, which was later acquired by NetJets, and <clears throat> helped manage that business. For a couple of years, and then right before um, we we acquired the Bucks, I worked for uh, Ron Perlman and McAndrews and Forbes, and helped uh, run a company called Deluxe Entertainment, which was kind of the preeminent post-production uh, media company in the world. Kind of really focused on motion picture, television, and commercial post-production around the world. So varied kind of content, but kind of always focused on kind of running P&Ls, driving revenue, and, and building, you know, growth-oriented companies. Could you tell me how, this This is fascinating to me, how is being president of, let's say, an operation like Marquee Jets, or obviously, as you said, got acquired by NetJets, how is that different than being the president of an NBA team? Well, I mean, it, at 30,000 feet, the, the real job is, is how to manage how to manage people and the human capital and how to organize how to, how to organize how to organize uh, and you know a, a a process and the system processes to, to run a growth business. So although very different in its operations and dealing with 3,500 pilots and dealing with thousands of flights on on any given day, you're still dealing with customers. You're still creating call to actions to get people to buy, and you're certainly like working on retention of your customers every single day. And that kind of stays through throughout my career. You know, I think about every day I kind of wake up, I think about acquisition and how we're going to grow new business. I think about how we're going to retain our most valuable customers, our existing customers, and then really think about how we're going to continue to grow the business and be innovative and branch out, you know, and possibly other, other, other areas by leveraging 
our, our valuable customer base. Well, obviously, as a marketing professor, I'm a, I'm a statistician and I'm chair of Wharton's marketing department. That's obviously music to my ears. Um, what kind of levers do you have in the NBA to do so? I mean, I'm assuming the Bucks, given you're literally the number one team in the NBA, I assume most of your games are sold out. So let's assume you can't sell a lot more tickets if you are. Uh, maybe you can grow the TV viewership. Maybe you can grow fans around the country. Like You obviously have one of the most marketable stars with Giannis in the NBA. How do you think about growth, customer lifetime value, and acquisition? Yeah, so we, that's a great question. So we, we think about it, we think about it on a local, regional, national, and global basis, you know, and, and, and might attack all of them a little bit differently of, of how we do it. On, on the local level, it's extremely transactional, and how do we how do we get people to to come to Pfizer Forum as a destination? How do we get them to transact with us, and and how do we get them within our within our app, within our ecosystem of retail and food and beverage and events in and around the state of Wisconsin? And that includes our grassroots activities. And then as we branch out, it's really how to promote how to promote the brand, how to drive people to Buckstore.com, how to create ancillary events, like whether they be big rallies or whether they be basketball clinics in China um, under the under the Bucks brand. So we're constantly thinking about, you know, what are those touch points? How do we how do we really inject the values of the brand? But always, always, always like how are we building it? How do we monetize it? How do we sustain it? And how do we which is great in this time of our lives? How do we continue the engagement? So part of the conversation is always, every day, how do we have the customized conversation with all of our fans, whether they be avid, whether they be casual, whether they're buying something online every five minutes, but how do we talk to them in their language and have this ability? And social has become that vehicle. I mean, our impressions, our engagement is great on television. It's fantastic. Our ratings are way up, but you know, in the state of Wisconsin, a great game, you know, has 80 to 100,000 people watching um, the Bucks on Fox Sports Wisconsin, whereas, you know, our video highlights of Giannis have 10 million video views, you know, in the first five minutes around the world, and a majority of them are in Asia. How do you leverage that in a way to position advertisers, to sell the media, and to be able to position your other properties? How do you think about now? I you've asked, you answered, you've said so many things from a marketing perspective. I need to get to, and then I'll have to get to the analytics part of your job. But how do you think about it? Um, protecting your brand when one of your assets, Giannis. I mean, let's hope. I even hope this, even though I'm a Sixer fan. I even hope Giannis is on the Bucks for his entire career because I think it would just be great for the NBA. But how do you think about protecting your brand when it is highly tied to one asset? I I want you to think not just about Giannis, but in any business you're in. How do you protect a brand that is so reliant on an entity? Well, I think, you know, again, kind of like our objective is how do we go after winning winning an NBA championship with a great team? We happen to be in a situation, which you mentioned, where we have a generational player, you know, which is so rare. And I tell you, three years ago was not the case. Kind of doing it now. We are leveraging. We are building the team around him. I don't think you, you should he- we, we should hesitate doing that. But the big key is, is building up, like, the team and building up kind of objectively where we – want to go. I think our ownership has made it very clear, you know, with Giannis, 
without Giannis, we are going to invest. We are going to be a championship-level team. We are going to do what it takes to keep a high caliber of competitive basketball in in Milwaukee. We started that five years ago and continued to build. Giannis has really been the accelerant, you know, uh, on a global on a global basis. So we certainly leverage the fact that Giannis has kind of kind of put put some gasoline on the fire at the same time we continue to build all the assets you know whether it's the building and the physical structure whether it's our retail whether it's our irreverent cool working class city of milwaukee that we want to kind of put a global brand on so we think about it all the time and we think about how do we really market this team and this brand um as strongly as we might leverage like an individual like Giannis. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. I'm here talking to Peter Fagan. Peter's in his fifth season as the president of the Milwaukee Bucks. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WARDEN. That's 1-844-942-7866. Let me now move on to, let's call it data and analytics. So why don't we just start with the basics? What does the data and analytics team look like at the Milwaukee Bucks? And the answer is, since I've worked with a number of sports teams, maybe you need to actually break it down by on the business side versus the on-field side, because for a lot of organizations I've worked with, there could be two separate divisions, one for you know dynamic pricing, ticket sales, merchandising, doing analytics, and there could be another one for the on-field, or is it both? Yeah, so what we do is we, we have them separated. We kind of have our basketball operations, which is your classic kind of on scouting, on analytics and insights on, on basketball performance and comparables and, and how do we how do we rank um, how do we rank, you know, for instance, draft uh, prospects and things like that. And David Mintzberg runs that division and he is glued to the hip to a guy by the name of Mike Leoponda who really runs our business side analytics and business insights. And the business side is, is traditionally what you think. The advantage we have is we kind of started over five years ago. So, like, as new ownership took over, we had a, you know, what I would call is not really a, a database, fact-based decision-making process, and we were able to, to, to kind of start new uh, as we entered the new building um, on the business side. And actually what we did was worked with Miami Heat, who had spent um, about five years and several million dollars with about 20 people in headcount to build kind of like a very robust, data lake and kind of a system that connected all of our same parts. I mean, we almost had a, a mirrored business, whether it was how they run American Airlines Arena, their ticketing business, their food and beverage business, their, their parking business. And what we were able to do was kind of almost buy their, their analytics and insights and, and database program that has worked so well for us in a two-year period to get it up and running very quickly. So we, we borrowed the best practice. We own and operate it ourselves. We have about five or six people on the basketball side, and we have about eight or nine people on the business side that spend a lot of time. They're all, I'd say on the business side, more generalists, so they work with all the stakeholders across the business entities, whether that's the Wisconsin Herd, our G League team, whether it's our parking, whether it's our real estate business. Um, and, and their job is really to, to get us to a position where we are really making fact-based decisions on on business. 
without giving away, obviously, any buck secret sauce, could you give a sense? Let's start with the on-court side. Could you give a sense of, let's call it, a major decision that you guys have made where, you know, I'll call it data and analytics has actually played a significant role? The example I always like to give is I spent five years working for the Philadelphia Eagles and Mr. Uh, Jeff Lurie, and my example was when when a scout's, when they were drafting and, a, and they had five minutes on the clock and a scout said they should draft person X, I wanted them to look down and see the Eric Bradlow mathematical model and be able to go to that person. You have 30 seconds to tell me why X, because the data doesn't say that's the best person. So could you give us an example of a big decision the Bucks have made on, let's say, the on-court side, let's start with, based on analytics? So I think it's good to tell kind of the premise of how we make decisions at the Bucks. So we have we have three primary owners that are that are all New York uh, finance based kind of minds: Mark Lazary, Wes Eden, and Jamie Dynan. We know Jamie they, here, obviously. We obviously know Jamie here at the Wharton School quite well. Right, right, and uh, and two of Mark's kids have gone to Wharton, um, so there's there's quite a connection to Wharton. And I will tell you that uh, you know what we do is almost like an investment recommendation. How do we condense something? Uh, I would say 30 seconds is a long time because we've pre-socialized it. But what's what's terrific is kind of the free agency is a great scenario. So John Horst is, is beyond prepared, socializes it with ownerships. We make a recommendation that is uh, both qualitative and quantitative because you are dealing with human beings. You're dealing with basketball players. And unlike football where you're dealing with probably hundreds of people that come in and off a team based on inter- based on in- uh, injuries – Basketball's a little more where where a player can contribute, you know, ten to fifteen percent, you know, to to the outcome. In free agency, for example, we made an argument that we really had to re-sign our core players uh, to fit into to Coach Bud's system, to fit into Coach Bud's system, uh, which is defensively oriented, spread out offensively, and customized around Giannis. And we had to make a big decision to to go after and re-sign Malcolm Brogdon or not go after and re-sign Malcolm Brogdon and what that would do to our performance and our results. And, you know, definitively, it really dealt with the statistics and the comparables that we had laid out that, you know, we had reduced the risk to to be able to move on and surround, surround Giannis with the right players without – uh, re-signing Malcolm Brogdon, which to the public was a big deal, but internally turned into a much easier decision as we laid out kind of all the pros and cons. And and a lot of those pros and cons were, were on the statistical side of were we able to have as efficient a defense and as efficient of an offense. Well, I just want to reiterate just from a fan's perspective, I guess a semi-lay person's perspective, I remember when the Sixers played the Bucks early in the season this year. I remember watching the game. The Bucks won the game. I remember saying to my wife and kids who we were at the game, saying, we can't get a shot off, and we can't cover their three-point shooters. So when you mentioned the defensive ability of the team, I, I don't think I've ever seen a game of the Sixers in the last three years where they've been good again, where the other team just disrupted everything they've done defensively. So clearly, you, whatever philosophy you're doing is actually working on the court. Could you actually talk maybe a little bit? I know you just recently spoke at MIT's conference. Could you talk a little bit about, it was about, my understanding is about optimizing the venue experience. Could you talk a little bit about that and uh, what your talk was about? Yeah, I think number one, it's knowing everything you can possibly know, you know, about the customer and kind of what's really changing, you know, and then where we are. I mean, we're in a place 
where you know I think we're 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 really trending towards a cashless transactional system in and around the venues and and kind of the venues are changing themselves too. I mean, we are now a district, uh, much like some other places like Philadelphia is down you know by, down by all the stadiums and the arenas. And and how do you manage that and optimize that? Um, in 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 the way we look at our analytics, the way we look at our customer profiles, how do we target them to market, you know, on varied events, and then how do we how do we actually monetize kind of the experiences in a big way? So, you know, for us, it, it's kind of the classic story of how do you how do you really control the journey? And the journey has started. It used to start, you know, driveway to driveway, and now I think what it's really started is. It really started like how do you communicate on a daily basis, you know, via social? How do you get them seamlessly through, you know, through your experience in your parking and into your arena? And then how do you help them direct in such a way that it's in their language, extremely seamless, and and they're in the arena? So I think all of us kind of dealt with different experiences, but the end story was, you know, the, the customer's so valued, it's getting it's getting easier to to kind of make that frictionless experience in the way you can communicate. And then for us, like, how do you really transact and optimize it, whether it's creating beacons in and around the arena in the district at retail and food and beverage levels, whether it's the ability to allow people to upgrade their tickets, whether it's creating new sections that are kind of like evolving for, for what customers want. For instance, no seats. We're selling... 500 to 750 standing room only seats, which used to be the worst seats in professional sports and are now kind of the hangout, casual, cool bar um, areas where people want to hang out and watch the game and have a tremendous value associated to them. So a lot of things I kind of I threw up on you on, on the answer. But I think for us, it's kind of maximizing and prioritizing what the opportunities are as, as this new you know, virtual mobile world is coming on, coming online. We only have a few minutes left, so I wanted to ask you, you know, one of the topics I talked about in the first half hour was the impact that the coronavirus may have on sporting events. Could you talk about, at least just in broad terms, you know, how you guys think about, you know, there's been a lot of discussion, obviously, may the, will the NBA play games without fans there? How are you thinking about the impact of the coronavirus and just the, the impact it will have on the, on the performance of the Bucs and on the league going forward? For someone that's got such an expertise, not only on the field, but also your expertise in branding and marketing. Yeah, I think right away, much like every business operator and owner, you know, and manager, like, you know, we're... We are beyond preparing and planning and creating action steps for a lot of different scenarios um, that happen because I think it's so fluid. You know, as you watch the news, things are changing every eight hours. You know, and our goal is is, is kind of simplistic, and we've got to keep it. We want to keep ourselves, our colleagues, and, and our fans, you know, healthy. You know, which is like the number one priority. You know, and at the same time, you know, which is interesting on your show, you know, address our business continuity um, in a big way. We we've, we've had like unbelievable collaboration with Scott O'Neill and, and the Sixers and the Devils and the Prue Center to, to kind of create action plans. But the NBA is beyond collaborative in figuring out kind of what are the different levels of reactions, because I think the truth is we could have business as usual. You could see what's happening in public gatherings, that there are no fans, and you could see a suspension of, of games. And as you know, what does that mean for the business continuity? Because there's so many kind of level. So we've been spending 
you know, literally the last, you know, 120 hours really focused on how do we have, how do we have all of our people, whether they're basketball or business people in the worst case scenario, be able to work remotely. How do we communicate with them? How do we sustain our business operations to, to get in? What's, who's essential, who's not essential. And really importantly, like how in real time do we communicate to all those constituencies like in a clear and direct way, because, you know, the, the thing we can't control is kind of what's going to happen and when it happens, because it seems, you know, th- things are going awfully quickly um, and, and differentiating like around the state. So the state of California, I think, has been the most progressive in Santa Clara, really kind of declaring it at the health department level to cancel public gatherings. I think you'll see New York today is extremely aggressive on uh on states of emergency and quarantined areas um, of it. So today, you know, we are 24-7 kind of figuring out we've got a game tomorrow against Boston at Pfizer. For right now, it's business as usual. Um, that doesn't mean I don't think that could pivot, you know, in the next four to four to eight hours to say, you know, if, if it's the right thing to do, we might have games without fans. Well, Peter, I'd like to thank you for joining me here on Morton Moneyball. I will say the following. While I can't honestly sit here on the air and say I'm going to root for you over the Sixers, I can safely say if it's not the Sixers, I will be rooting for the Milwaukee Bucks. I've always loved the team. So I'd like to thank you for joining me here this morning on Morton Moneyball. Well, I can tell you I, I want you as a fan, but I, I appreciate loyalty like you can't imagine. So. So I respect it. I'm not going to support it, but I respect it. Well, thank you for joining me. So this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Stay with us and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. Some combination of myself, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, and Cade Massey are every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM 132. If you want to join the conversation, it's as easy as calling. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Of course, we're living in the modern era here in Wharton Moneyball. You can easily join the conversation by tweeting at us at WMoneyball, or you can email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So our next guest, Kevin Qualey, um, is a graphics editor and reporter at the New York Times, where he writes for The Upshot, the Times site about politics, economics, and everyday life. He writes around a range of topics, sports, politics, health care, and income inequality. Uh, Kevin, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure, no problem. Actually, um, you're going to be. I'm going to be asking you about two topics that we've spent a lot of time talking about over the last year or so. Um, first, why don't we before we dive into both running and running shoes and women's running and stuff like that? Why don't we start with your background and kind of you know all the different things you do for the New York Times, which includes sports and other things. Sure. So um, my, like, without wasting everyone's time giving a full biography, but my basic background, as a, in, in college I was a, a physics major, and I have a graduate degree from the Missouri School of Journalism. So I basically I, I work with a lot of math and numbers uh, at the Times, and I work at the Times of Site uh, called The Upshot, which is uh, at, sort of at the intersection of policy politics and data so a lot of my sports work which is something i really love working on is almost like extracurricular just because it's something i'm really interested in but most of my time is spent closer to politics and policy and data rather than 
sports and data. So let me ask you a question. How do you take your sports knowledge? I always say if you're a math sports type person, you can apply that type of thinking to everything. So how do you take your data analytics and mathematical orientation and apply it to sports versus politics? Are there any differences, any the same? Do you think of things the same way? Uh, yeah, I think I think it's easier to teach someone who knows a lot about data that there are lots of opportunities in sports rather than teaching someone who knows a lot about sports um, how to do a lot of data analysis. So I think sports is, I mean, this is there's nothing new about this, but there's it's rife with opportunities. People write down and record every single aspect of tons of games. You can find out what the pitch count was in a baseball game at any point, you know, 20 years ago. You can just, like, all these things are known, so it just provides lots of opportunities for people who are curious uh, and who have data skills to sort of explore and test hypotheses. Well, let me ask you, since you've uh, mentioned you do a lot of work in politics and maybe on the math of it, so obviously we're in a political season right now. Um, I was up very late last night watching the election results. Let me see if I can get all the states. Uh, Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, Idaho, Washington, and uh, North Dakota. And so I was watching that, and I, you know, so just like um, we compute summary statistics in sports to summarize how the game went, is there a similar set of statistics that you think about? Obviously, we know who, quote-unquote, won. Well, most of them. We know who won the states. We know their voting percentage. We can break it down by demographic. What does the scorecard look like in politics for someone that does data analysis in politics? Sure. So the group I work with at The Upshot is um, we're responsible for uh, one of the Times' most or best-known uh, election night products, what we call the, the live forecast, or most people think of as uh, love or hate, they think of it as the needle. So we are, I am part of the team that basically provides those estimates in real time. And so that involves lots of, like, basically understanding lots of demographic and um, other kinds of data and a basic understanding of, like, political geography of lots of states. And that allows us to give a forecast in real time. Now, my colleagues, Josh Katz and Nate Cohn, are doing most of the heavy lifting. Sometimes my job on election night is literally to get them water, and I'm happy to do so. But uh, lots, lots of basically lots of the same thinking goes into those things. And the math isn't like particularly – some of the math is complicated in the sense that like some of the statistical modeling uh, in these live situations is very difficult, but sometimes it's just arithmetic. You know, delegate math is basically arithmetic, and even though it's complicated, it's not necessarily something that a high school student couldn't do. So before we move on to sports, I just let me just sure. push a couple more questions on politics. So sure. um, is there anything that hap- that's happened in the Democratic primaries from a statistic or statistical perspective that would shock the average listener here? Like we know who's got how many delegates or roughly how many delegates at this point. We know vote percentages. We kind of know the demographics that let's talk about the last two candidates standing, Biden and Sanders. Is there anything from a statistical perspective you would say, wow, this surprised even us? That's, um, that's something I will leave to some of my other colleagues, uh, either my colleague uh, Nate or my colleagues on the politics test. That's sort of out of the scope of, I feel like the chances of me saying something incredibly stupid are very high. So I, it's, be, it's best to say I don't know, which is something people should say more often. Well, I, I, I like that. But I will say the following. I think we'd all agree that uh, 12 days ago before South Carolina, not a lot of us would have forecast necessarily this. So that's certainly true. 
Um, So why don't we move on to some of the stuff that you've done in sports? I mean, one of the big stories, not just in the New York Times, but yes, and other places have been on these faster Nike shoes, the Vaporfly. So could you talk about the article and what it is you found? Sure. So um, something uh, we have been interested in in a while, and we first published this article, a version of it, more than a year ago, is um, whether it's like there's no shortage of news articles written about these shoes. And what we tried to think about was if we could answer this question, um, if there is data that existed in the world that would allow us to answer this question um, with a little bit more precision or a little bit more than uh, anecdotal evidence. And uh, we found, I think, a novel data source that allowed us to answer that. So, like, the ideal way to, to measure whether Nike shoes or any shoes really matter rather than, like, the possibility that faster shoes are just picking up these shoes. Like, it's, it's not surprising to see the world's best athletes running in them because they're the world's best athletes. It doesn't necessarily, like, imply anything about causality. So what we thought is, like, if there was a random like double blind study where some people are running in shoes and some are not and you don't even know if you're running in them or not, like that would provide us ample evidence to see whether the shoes really statistically cause you to run faster. Now since that doesn't exist, we looked for data where it existed in the real world, which is on Strava. Strava is a social media app. They call themselves a social media app for athletes, or some version of that. And what you do on there and I know this because I'm a Strava user and lots of my um, friends and people who I know who run and bike a lot are users as well, is you can, like, if you run in, say, the New York Marathon and you use this app, uh, you will, like, use your satellite watch and you'll run the race, and then you'll upload that result to um, to the app. And the app is very smart. It says, hey, did you just run the New York Marathon? Like, it doesn't just say, like, hey, it seems like you ran for a run in New York City. It sort of knows what the races are. And one of the things you can do in addition to your, like, final time and your splits and all this other information is, uh, you can upload information about what shoe you wore. Now, that is stupid for most people, but for people who run a lot, it's pretty helpful because it allows you to track the mileage on your shoes. So it'll say, like, hey, seems like you've run 624 miles in these ASICs. Maybe it's time for a new pair of shoes. That's like, or maybe if you have lots of, like, specific race shoes and you need to know, you need to, like, monitor your mileage on those, that feature is relatively useful. To be truth, I don't really know exactly why they have the feature, but it is a lesser-known feature, and... Um, about one in 10 athletes, I think, who upload race information have it. So the good thing about this is that a huge number of people um, use Strava. I think literally like one in three finishers of the New York Marathon, so like 50,000 runners, one in three of them or one in four of them, something like that, uploaded their results to Strava and they made it public. And we were able to basically go through their all every single public race record that was uploaded to Strava, which is, by this point, it's more than a million marathons and half marathons, and that gave us the data set that we were looking for. So it had uh, athlete, it had a race, it had um, how fast you ran it, and for some runners, it had um, oh, it also had your age and um, your gender, and for some runners, it also had the shoes. So that basically provided us the perfect data set, or as perfect as we were going to get in the real world, for us to test whether what the effect, if any. Um, of sh- wearing a specific brand or kind of shoe is in a race. So That's just our f- 
fundamental data set. So just for my listeners, just for listeners here on Moneyball, Moneyball, you did something like the following. You had, you let's, may not have been as simple, but maybe it was like a regression model where you had the Y variable being the marathon time. You had a bunch of other variables you controlled for, like maybe you could even control for the, imagine the weather at the time of the race, but the age of the racer, who the, ra- who the runner was, etc. And then you had a variable for type of shoe and you looked at the coefficient in front of that and said, oh, this type of shoe is improving things by a certain amount. Is that essentially the analysis you did? That's basically right. So on top of the information that we had for Strava, all the things that are on there, we did add information about weather on race day, and we did also control for your race history if we could. So, like, without – I don't. I still have to ask Josh. I still don't have, like, a 100% understanding of what propensity scores are, but we did say, like, hey, we try to control for your likelihood to switch to the shoes based on – improving race time. So as much as possible, we tried to control for everything except the shoe. Yeah, no, so just to give you, just for our listeners, I'm glad you brought up the topic. Um, The idea of a propensity score is you basically take two people, um, make sure you actually match those people, it's called propensity score matching, on their probability to have used this shoe. Because some people, you could, if you don't do that, then maybe people that chose to use this shoe are going to run faster times or expecting to run faster times. And therefore, by doing propensity score matching, you're actually kind of taking that factor, that self-selected factor out of the analysis. So it's great to hear that you guys did that. Um, well, we, I mean, that's only one of the ways that, like, we still don't know. And if you read the article, we're still very cautious about it. Like, there are other things that we'll never be able to control for. Like, if we, like, we'll never know exactly if there's something about a certain kind of person that allows them to wear a shoe, or, like, where they were to choose the shoe on race day or not. But we did as we did the best we could. No, no. I, I, so you actually, in, during the first half hour of the show today, I talked about natural experiments and the ability to do it. Yeah, you'd love to run randomized experiments all day long, but you're not going to be randomizing runners, at least not top elite runners, to wearing different kinds of shoes. So it's a really interesting analysis. I'm also a very, I'm an effect size guy. So okay. can you give our listeners here a sense, like, does it make you run half a percent faster, 1% faster, 10% faster? Like how big an effect are we talking about for these shoes? And then since a lot of it you said were marathons, like in a marathon time, is it, you know, how does that translate? Is it a minute faster over two hours and eight minutes or seven minutes? Or how how big an effect is it? So we found it to be um, a pretty sizable effect. Now that all depends on what you're going for and who you are and blah, blah, blah. But we think it, it, we believe that it, it really matters. So one way uh, we, we've approached this um, question, so even just one of the ways we approached it was the model that you described. It, uh, we described it a handful of other ways. We can talk about those as well. But basically, like the effect that we've measured is what's the effect of wearing this shoe compared to wearing an average shoe? Or you could also think of it from a different way, which is what's the effect of wearing the shoe compared to the second fastest shoe of all the shoes that we could find? And so depending on how you think about that problem, it's somewhere between two and five percent. Now that also that matters if you're a four thirty hobbyist runner or a, a two forty five, you know, very fast runner. But basically, I think we're comfortable saying around two percent um, for even for a relatively fast runner. And say you're a three hour marathoner, which is a pretty fast runner at my age, that that would qualify you um, for the Boston Marathon. It's not like you're not going to win any races with that, but it's a fast time. Uh, we think that you know that's worth something like. I have to I have to double check, but it's something like four minutes, two or three minutes. So like that. Well, even someone, but I'm going to understand at the elite level. So let's say you know, in my, I'm probably even outdated. Well, I know someone just 
broke, I think it was two hours, but let's just say a two-hour and 10-minute marathoner, which is 130 minutes, yep. you're saying that it could have an effect of two or three minutes? It could make a 210 marathoner, a 208 or 207 marathoner? So at that steep edge of the distribution, like these athletes are not normal people. They are freak athletes, and there's like nothing about them that's normal. So I'm less confident talking about what happens to elite marathoners uh, at with these shoes and people are some people respond are responders and some people are non-responders to shoes like this so we're whenever i'm talking about this i'm talking about averages and i just don't have huge sample sizes like i do for a 210 runner that i do for a 245 runner in our data set so uh conditional on the fact that i'm i'm not confident in forecasting or estimating anything at that end of the distribution i i think it's still safe to say that um on average uh, a runner wearing shoes like this would have an advantage over a runner who didn't. But I don't, I'm not ready to say anything about like, like, yeah, it's true that Kip, I can't pronounce his name properly. But, Kipchoge? Uh, Kipchoge, yeah, sure. That, I was going to try something close to that. It's true that he was wearing this like version of the Nikes called the Alpha Flies when he broke the two hour marathon. Like, he is on, he's on, he could, he could win a race wearing cowboy boots. Like, it doesn't matter at all what his shoes are. But it's true that like those shoes probably, he's still the, he's the world's best marathoner, but they probably had some sort of effect. Um, on his race time, but it's impossible to know exactly which. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. We're talking to Kevin Qualey. Kevin is a graphics editor and reporter at the New York Times where he writes for The Upshot. He writes about sports, politics, economics, and everyday life. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So um, let me ask you, do you th- so what was the reaction in the industry? Like, is there a day where, you know, just like Juiced up bats? Like, does this get, you know, well, you can't use these shoes anymore? What was the upshot of this in the industry? Or everyone's like, I got to get these shoes? Or how is it actually taken by the industry itself? So, uh, when you say the industry, you mean like the, like, sports the governing bodies. Yeah, yeah, the sports yeah. athletic commissions and the governing bodies. So, I think it's fair to say that um, everybody who thinks about shoes and running has seen this article and we get lots of we get lots of mail uh, especially from statisticians and college professors talking about causality we get we still get lots of mail about that i think no one even and that, this includes us thought that our article would result in having the shoes banned and they were not banned but i do think uh this, this article was cited in lots of like proposals to talk about how to regulate shoes and uh it's certainly like has I don't want to say shaped the conversation, but it has been an important backdrop in the conversation of thinking about how to meaningfully and constructively talk about shoes uh, as we go as like as technology becomes better and better. Recently, I think I think it was in January, it could have been in February, the IWAF or I think they switched the name to World Athletics. They did come out with a um, a ruling on shoes, and I think it was had to do with heel height, but they didn't effectively like ban any shoe that exists now. I think they set a a rule about that your heel could not be taller than forty millimeters or something like that. And even uh, on the Alpha Flies, I think it's something like thir- they're already thirty-eight millimeters. So they're sort of grandfathered in in that way. So have you, since this was such a successful article for you and deservedly so, have you thought about other sports and like have you decided? Wow, I'm interested now in. I'll call it apparel, athletic equipment, and how it could change other sports? Or is this a one-time thing, shoes and running? I mean, 
I'll always, I'm always on like I'm always looking for opportunities on the fancy shoe beat, but uh, it's for this it was some uh, I don't it was like a good combination of topic we're interested in, a, a perfect and novel data set that we're able to exploit, and uh, there was a lot of it was a timely news story because the world the world records in marathons have kept coming down, so it's in that case it's like at the front of minds for lots of our readers, but like I don't have a topic that i'll say like yes now i want to move to you know like uh track suits or anything like i i don't have uh, there's no next logical um sport in mind for us it's really more about the data rather than the um subject if that makes well sense. you may remember actually the you mentioned track suits it wasn't in track but you remember at the previous olympics where the body suits that the swimmers were wearing actually allowed a lot of records to be broken there was a lot of discussion as you may remember about the body suits that swimmers were using. But either way, yeah. it's, a, it's a fascinating topic. Um, let's move on to maybe what you've done with female running. Um, I remember a long time ago as a statistician that, uh, well, I'm still a statistician, but I remember a long time ago people talking about one way to think about how female running times have gone down is to say, what year would it have to be for the best female runner to have beaten the best male runner? Like, if you know, it's 2020, let's say a woman can run a marathon in 225, 220, whatever the number is. What was When was that the men's record? So how, can you tell us about the analysis that you've done on female runners and, you know, kind of how much faster are they getting? Sure. So this actually, um, not that there's anything completely new about this, but this idea first came up when we were doing all the shoe analysis, which is that, I started noticing these huge spikes of uh, women, particularly at this one race, California International Marathon, uh, which is held in, um, I think, the Sacramento area every December. And there are just these huge numbers of women running at a, what they call an OTQ pace, which at the moment is a 245 or below. It's about something like a 617 pace. And I remember just like looking and seeing um, – this seems like more than normal, and I checked the World Athletics website, and sure enough, it seemed that it was like double than what it had been in recent years. So uh, we talked to my colleagues in sports, and my colleague Lindsay Krause in Krause, please, in um, opinion, had also written about this about her own personal experience. But we basically found uh, we, we we didn't find it. We noticed this, and uh, that women, more women than ever, were running at an uh, OTT pace than ever before, and we sort of set to find out why. So we're talking to Kevin Qualey. Uh, Kevin is a graphics editor and reporter at the New York Times, where he writes for The Upshot. He writes about politics, economics, and everyday life. He's also written some recent articles about shoes that we're talking about, the Nike Vaporfly. And now we're talking to Kevin about uh, women's racing and kind of why their times have uh, in- improved. So, Kevin, uh, yeah, could you tell us again, uh, so what you found, was there anything specific about that race? Was there anything specific? What was your, I don't want to say causally, but why did you find women were running faster in that race and maybe in general? Sure. So I think there's a, a combination of things. It's, I think that race is particular because it's a, it's a relatively fast race. I think it's like a gentle net downhill, or it's certainly not particularly hilly. So it's a, in, a, in Sacramento in the winter, so it is a relatively good conditions for a strong race. And, um, but that's like the race is not specifically it. I think basically it's some combination of increased interest and participation among, um, faster or like sub elite, uh, women. So, like, even though not necessarily more women than ever aren't running, um, 
marathons, people like people on the faster to the distribution. I think lots of lots more of them in general are participating, and I think shoes definitely had something to do with it. And I think the OTQ standard, the 245, is something that is a little bit more within reach for a potentially sub elite woman than the OTQ standard for um, the men is. So I think that's a, that is a, a like a more realistic goal, and allowed lots of people to. Um, basically set it and achieve it. Have people found in races where there are more people running faster in some sense? You know, they always talk about pace setters. Does that, now that you have a race that's known to have a number of sub-elite runners, does that make there be even more runners want to join the race, which makes it even easier in some way for people to run faster times? Yeah, I think I think there's an element of truth to that. I'll never call it easy running a 245 marathon for anybody. <laughs> there's nothing easy about that, but I do think in general, like, the idea that I know somebody who has done this or I know somebody who I have a training partner who's doing this, it just that sort of does have an effect, in a, even speaking for myself or people who I know who have gotten a lot faster. Seeing them do it makes me as a competitor think, well, if they can do that, well, I'm sure that I can do that too. So I think these sorts of things sort of reinforce themselves, if that makes sense. And for sure, there's a, having a pace better or having a huge like pace group uh, at a race like that, which I know there was, was um, was had a real effect. Could you talk about other things that you're working on right now? Um, you know, you've obviously done some work in running. Uh, are you doing more stuff in running, other sports, uh, or it could be politics? Because uh, I'm sure our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball would be interested to kind of other things that have kind of caught your eye. Sure. So, I mean, our biggest project right now, like even even this um, sports project that we just talked about with the wins running, that that is still sort of like a side project or something I, I had to sneak in in between Super Tuesday and the New Hampshire primary. But our primary focus right now is um, or has been delivering uh, the live forecast needle on election night. So we did it for Super Tuesday. We did it for Iowa. We did it for New Hampshire. And that's something that we think is a real value add that we have that other news organizations just can't do, which is helping readers understand the final delegate count at the end of the night or the final vote count. Um, because early returns are not representative. That's like basically the, the reason why we have a live forecast for elections. So with the results last night, I'm not necessarily sure exactly what our primary plans would be for that because the the race has gotten less competitive than it was. Uh, on top of that, obviously we have um, uh, uh, the coronavirus is something that we're like following closely, I'm working from home right now, like many of my colleagues are at the New York Times, out of a as a precautionary measure. So uh, we are thinking about ways that we can use data, and we have lots of colleagues um, who work in public health. And basically, it's just this is a story that touches lots of areas that we work on: public health, policy, insurance, uh, data. And so um, this is just something that we're going to be writing about extensively for the next few weeks, especially as our lives in the United States change. So those are probably the two biggest things that we're focused on uh, in the short term. Well, let me ask you two follow-up questions to that. First, um, why do you find that uh, early election returns aren't indicative? Is it because they're more likely to come in from larger cities and that favors one candidate? Or is there a different factor than, you know, let's call it large ver- uh, city versus urban versus rural areas as to why the early returns are not representative? Sure. I think what you said is basically true, but the opposite, which is that um, big cities tend to uh, report their returns last. Oh, so okay. Most most of the time, and the easiest example is not necessarily to understand, is not necessarily between uh, two Democrats, but the easiest one to understand is between a 
typical Republican and a typical Democrat. So Virginia is a state where lots of people will like it's easiest to understand this, which is that Virginia has very rural areas and it also touches, you know, the the Washington DC area and that area is very liberal. But the first returns that if you're like watching CNN or you're looking at the New York Times, the first returns that you get from there are, are from places that are heavily Republican. And so and you may not get another result from that state for another half hour, another forty five minutes. So for forty five minutes the networks and the New York Times, all these people are telling you that a Republican is up 20 points. But if you are an elections expert, like most people on CNN are, you know that you already expected that place to be 20% or plus 20 Republican. So what the live a live forecast does in the best case is to say, I expected that to be plus 22 Republican. Now it's plus 20 Republican. Therefore, I'm adjusting my expectations everywhere else to um, – learn about this place and to sort of give you an adjusted forecast based on that. So in the sense that just, it's like a substitute for having a political geography understanding of a state. And um, that's like the very simplest version of it, but a version of that works for results with two Democrats. Uh, it works in multi, multi-Democrat or multi-candidate uh, races, but at, at its core, it is a, trying to adjust for the non-representativeness of early returns. Early vote is totally different than other kinds of vote too, so we have to understand that as well. It's a great it's a great lesson for our listeners, which is you're comparing votes against predictions and expectations and then adjusting off of that. So just as you said, just because a Republican might be up twenty percent, you're like, well we were expecting twenty two percent. So actually they're underperforming compared to expectations, which may allow you to make some sort of adjustments is what I'm hearing you're saying. Yeah, that's basically right. So let me ask you another thing. You had mentioned the coronavirus. So one of the things I was thinking last night, which turned out, I think, if I was able, you know, I'm just, I'm watching, as you mentioned, CNN, um, I'm watching the returns, and I was also watching the total vote count, which I think was higher in 2020 than it was in 2016 for the respective primaries. Are you guys thinking at all of the role of the coronavirus? Forget on which candidate it might be favoring, although you might. Um, Will it have an impact on turnout? And, and what that might do to the actual election cycle. Yeah, I think that's a little bit outside the scope of my knowledge. Right? I, I, anything I would tell you would probably be a net disservice to anyone listening to this. So I don't know for sure, and I would defer to my other, other colleagues on that one. Yeah, I was just asking if you were thinking about it. I, was just, I wasn't even saying what the result sure. might be. I was just The only thing I was noticing last night was, um, when I, like I'll take an example of Michigan. I'm pretty sure when Sanders went up against Clinton in 2016, the total number of votes was somewhere like 1.2 million. And my projections last night, based on what I saw as the vote count, that it was over 1.3, 1.4 million. So I was just looking at the literally the turnout, and maybe I was a little more surprised that the turnout was larger given health concerns that are happening now. That, that's the only reason I asked. Gotcha. So, Kevin, um, anything else that caught your eye? Anything else you're working on um, that we can talk about in the last few minutes? Or let me just say, if we're talking about, let me just say, the, let me ask in a different way. If five years from now you're back here on Morton Moneyball, um, what will have changed in your job? Will something have changed in the kinds of things you're working on, maybe the kinds of data you have, the kinds of things that you think New York Times readers are interested in? What will have changed? I mean, hopefully our our sophistication um, as an organization will be, uh, in terms of understanding and telling stories like this, will be higher. So there will hopefully be more people like me and my colleagues uh, at the Times in general than than less. So like basic like the share of journalists who have skills like this, we hope that they are higher, not lower. I think I expect that there will be way more opportunities to find novel data sources than there are now. That is, there's nothing new about that, but like I think 
basically being able to tell more stories because more data is available and we have better tools to understand and process it. And I think um, hopefully we'll third out a way to um, make compelling visualizations on your phone in ways that don't give me the same headaches that they do now. Well, Kevin, I'd like to thank you for joining me here on uh, Wharton Moneyball. We've been talking to Kevin Quayley. Kevin is a graphics editor and reporter at the New York Times, where he writes for The Upshot. He writes for The Times about politics, economics, and everyday life. Kevin, thank you for your time this morning for joining me on Wharton Moneyball. No problem. Thank you very much. So this has been the first three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half hour to go. I'm going to talk about lots of things, including, as I mentioned, predicting the uh, how the NFL injury rate may change when we have no date on the 17th game. Maybe my thoughts about my angry thoughts about the Ivy League canceling its tournament and our Penn Quakers not going to the tournament. Please join us after the break. Listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. Some combination of myself, Cade Massey, Adi Weiner, and Shane Jensen are every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. And we're replayed throughout the week. You can go on iTunes, SoundCloud, and your favorite place to download podcasts. Just search for us, Wharton Moneyball. And if you want to join me in the last half hour of the show, please do. Call me at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So since I knew I would be by myself in the studio today, I, pre- I prepared lots and lots of content, but I try to do that every week here on Wharton Moneyball. I thought I'd go through kind of a rapid-fire round of a lot of them, see how many I can get to for our listeners uh, here. So the first one I'll talk about, which I already mentioned in the first half hour, was the impact of a 17th game. So on the one hand, it's an easy problem, meaning... Let's imagine you just number the games from 1 to 16. You build what's called a hazard model, which is the probability of an injury in a given game, let's say for a given player of a certain type, given you haven't been injured already. You can build what's called a hazard model, build in lots of variables, but you could also put in, let's say, a linear effect for a game, like, for example, the eighth game versus the fourth game. That's obviously eight is twice four. What is the rate of injury in the eighth game versus the fourth, the 16th versus the eighth? The 17th is just another number that you can jam into this mathematical function to get a prediction. Now, of course, a lot of people would say, well, that's making an assumption that things are linear, which is true. That may not be true. We could test to see whether things are linear or not. Um, You might say, "Why, why wouldn't they be linear? Well, maybe what players, obviously, and owners are worried about is that it might be quadratic, which means it spikes up. Like the 17th game is much worse than the 16th game. And that's the challenge that you're going to have. That's the risk because, you know, this is the classic what we call extrapolation outside the range of data. We could try to get something from other sports when they've extended the season, but maybe the NFL is just very different. That's the big concern is that somehow, some way, the 17th game versus the 16th game is much different than the 16th game versus the 15th game. So that's the thing. You can come up with a forecast. My advice would be if you're going to ever forecast a situation like that, make the forecast. That's what we do as statisticians. We forecast out of sample. But you're going to have to put a huge standard error on that. You just We just don't have any real data on a 17th game. Now, we do have a little because, actually, this is interesting. I hadn't thought about this before the show, but this is why I'm doing this in real time. There might be some players that have played 17 games. These are players who got traded in the middle of the season. 
who played on a bye week for one team and then or didn't play a bye week and then got moved over. I actually think there are some players that may have played 17 games, but it's probably very small. We probably have very, very, very limited data on the players. Now you could say, well, what about the preseason game? Except, yeah, that's funny football. That doesn't really count. And so either way, that's something that caught my eye uh, in sports. Uh, staying in the NFL, now that I'm going through my rapid fire round here, um, I noticed something about Dak Prescott. So I, I think everybody knows Dak Prescott is the starting quarterback, or at least as of now, for the Dallas Cowboys. Um, they're potentially offering him somewhere in the $33, $34 million a year range, which puts him in the elite quarterback pay range. Um, and then, of course, you know, based on ESPN ratings, he's 10th. Uh, based on QBR, he's 4th. So then I started to think about a different counterfactual. Suppose the Dallas Cowboys right now went to the Cincinnati Bengals, who hold the number one pick, and said, we'll trade you Dak Prescott for the number one pick. Would the Cincinnati Bengals do that? If I were the Dallas Cowboys, I would do that just to find out, like, are we the only ones drinking Dak Prescott Kool-Aid, or is Dak Prescott worthy of the number one pick in the draft? Now, let's say the good news and the bad news. The good news and the bad news, because of Dak Prescott, is that he has performed very well. He's been a pro bowler. You kind of have a body of evidence for him. In statistical terms, it's lower variance. You know that Dak Prescott, matter of fact, I think doesn't. no one disagrees that you can win a Super Bowl with Dak Prescott. I think the question is whether he's going to help you win the Super Bowl. So would you trade him essentially for Joe Burrow? Joe Burrow's never played a snap in the NFL. We know Joe Burrow's college stats, but would you make that trade? I don't literally mean because, look, the reality is, there are very few players that would ever have the worth of the number one overall pick in the draft. I, I just thought it was an interesting counterfactual thought experiment. If the would, the would the Bengals accept such a trade? And you say, well, he's older. Actually, he's not that much older than Joe Burrow, so you don't have to worry about age so much. Um, and maybe he's someone that could accelerate the Bengals faster than uh, Dak Prescott could. Either way, I thought that was kind of very interesting. And that's kind of what caught my eye in the NFL. Um, the other thing that caught my eye in the NFL lately, actually, and this relates to, um, we've had, we had someone on who was the president of the, I forget, the Washington, whatever the Washington XFL team, stamp, D.C. Defenders, the D.C. Defenders. Um, they're actually proposing a similar rule change here in the NFL, which is the following. Let's say my team has scored, and right now, as everybody knows, you can kick the extra point for one, or you can go for two from the two-yard line. That's in the NFL. A, a change that they're going to vote on this year is imagine after scoring, you put the ball in your own 25-yard line, and you have one play to gain 15 yards. And if you get it, you get to keep the ball. Now, to me, that would make the NFL much more exciting. You'd kind of never be out of games. In theory, you can just keep scoring. The other team can never get the ball. You score, you go for a first down from the 15, from the 25 for 15 yards, you score again. I mean, in some sense, now, of course, you could end up losing by a lot more, but who cares? Once you lose the game, you lose the game. I think that would be a great rule, and I'm very, very interested. Now, of course, what would it also do is, actually, I was talking about it with my 14-year-old son, and his comment was, well, wouldn't that really penalize a team that is a strong running team? Because that team 
you're not going to hang. Let's take Derrick Henry, one of the better running backs this year. You're not handing it off to Derrick Henry on, let's say, the equivalent of a fourth and 15. So wouldn't that change people's ability in some sense to, you know, you're going to build your team then around passing and offense? And I think it would. I think that would be a very interesting impact on the way that it would affect the team. So that's a rule change I'm also for. Another one that they're looking at right now is actually putting a what they're calling a sky judge. So they're actually thinking of putting somebody up in the booth. That person in real time will be able to watch all the plays, call down to the head referee on the field. I don't know why you wouldn't do this. I, I don't know how. I mean, I think we a lot of people agree that the you know the challenging, the pass interference and all this has been a somewhat of a disaster, um, but maybe that'll get improved. But why not put a sky judge up there? Why not get the call right faster in real time? Uh, the NFL's argument actually to me was shocking why they might not do it. Um, we're not confident, you know, let's say there's 17 games in a week or 16 games. We're not confident we can find 16 good sky judges to put up there. I'm like, what? You, you, that's your reason? I mean, does that imply you can't get good judges, you can't get good referees on the field too? It's like, I could be a sky judge. Just put me up there. I've watched enough football. I'll tell you whether the guy's inbounds, out of bounds. I have LASIK corrected vision. I can see whether a guy's stepping on the white. I can tell whether guys grab someone else's jersey. And you know what? This is actually a great thing. Run. Here's what you do, actually. I just came up with another idea. Run a national examination. You Could you imagine doing the following? Put up on a website a bunch of calls that you think you know the answer to. I'm going to use machine learning and supervised learning to do this. Have a bunch of experts judge these calls. Put up on NFL.com all of these different plays and have people take a test. See who's actually good at this. I guarantee you, just from the non-trained expert public, you could find 17 people. You can probably find 17,000 people if you do this who can get the same accuracy rate for a variety of calls as experienced referees. Again, I'm not saying down on the field. I'm saying watching a slow-motion video replay. So I'm all for the sky judge, but I'm also all for a national referee examination online using testing and machine learning and supervised learning on how to both, number one, to find out who's the best and who can actually be a sky judge, and number two, how they can actually improve it. Because, for example, if a referee thinks the following is pass interference, but 98% of the fans don't, then maybe the referee can improve as well. So that also kind of caught my eye uh, in the NFL. Um, Since we've spent a fair amount of time talking about the coronavirus today, both uh, our past speaker, Kevin Qualey, was talking about it, and I also talked about it uh, with uh, the president of the Bucks as well. Um, Another thing that was interesting to me was we actually have another natural experiment that kind of existed in sports. So one of the semi-bigger tennis tournaments, the Indian Wells tournament, uh, got canceled this week. Now, the reason I think of that as a natural experiment is that one of the things we think about in sports a lot, especially in tennis, especially given what Roger Federer has done over the last three years, winning three majors since the age of 36, is he didn't play that many tournaments. Well, 
no one can play Indian Wells because the tournament was canceled. Matter of fact, Rafa Nadal was there. Djokovic was supposed to be there, a lot of the top players. So now that player gets an extra week of rest. So imagine it turns out that a bunch of tennis tournaments are canceled. And again, back to what I spoke about in the first half hour, they're not canceled for a player because that player has chosen not to play. They're canceled for a reason that's exogenous to that particular player's health. So now, all of a sudden, a tournament gets canceled. So now, imagine saying, oh, wonder how Rafa Nadal does the week after he has a week off. But again, he didn't choose to take a week off. He was given a week off. I think this is another really amazing opportunity for the kind of natural experiment that we ex- that we hope for in sports. I, in the first half hour, was talking about it for home field. Imagine a bunch of games get played without fans there. Maybe we could decouple sleeping in my own bed versus the fans there. I think this would be a very interesting natural experiment to say in tennis, what is the role of, uh, of rest? And related to that, just since I'm rapid fire going through, but there is a theme and a connection to all of mine. Um, in golf, we also have another person that's resting now, but I'm not sure, it, but it is because of health, and that's Tiger Woods. So this is one of the big uh, weeks in golf, the Players' Championship. A lot of people call that the fifth major. It's not a real major, but it's not far from the major. And Tiger's also decided to sit this out. He hasn't played in three weeks. And of course, there's a small little tournament in Augusta, Georgia coming up in a few weeks called the Masters. And one of the big debate topics is is Tiger going to be better off resting his back, which is what he had a stiff back. That's what he played the Genesis Open, shot well in the first round, but clearly was having back issues in the last three rounds. What will happen on the rest for his back, which is good, versus kind of the rustiness? Now, his is a little different, as I mentioned, because he's resting his back because his back is injured. So that's kind of that puts him in a rest is different for him than kind of forced rest where they cancel a bunch of golf tournaments or tennis tournaments because of the coronavirus. But it'll be interesting to see. I mean, to me, if Tiger Woods, after essentially playing three or four times since last year's Masters, or maybe eight to ten times, if he could come and win the Masters again, I would call it the second greatest feat in sports after him winning last year's Masters after not having win in a, having won a major in 11 years. But I just don't see how, given the need for practice and under-pressure conditions, if that's true, I think it would be very interesting. But again, that was kind of my coronavirus rest theme. Um, do we have the opportunity to learn something? Just related to that, and my cousin, uh, Alec Bradlow, uh, texted me during the show about this, like, when are you going to talk about the injustice in the Ivy League? And just so our listeners here on Morton Moneyball know, um, the Ivy League did something that so far no other conference has done, which is, so just so everyone knows, up until historically, the Ivy League and NCAA men's basketball has a guaranteed spot, they still do, in the NCAA tournament. So one of the field of, depends how you want to count, 66 or 67, 64, one of those spots is for the Ivy League. Historically, whoever won the regular season title in the Ivy League, and each there's eight Ivy League teams, they each play each other twice, so you play 14 Ivy League games. The team that won the regular season went to the NCAA tournament. About three years ago, they changed that to where they now have an Ivy League tournament. So the top four teams, one plays four, two plays three, then the winners play, and that team then goes to the Ivy League tournament. And by the way, it's really been exciting for the Ivy League. It's been great. Well, just this week, the Ivy League announced that they're not going to be playing the Ivy League tournament. They've assigned Yale, who won the regular season, and deservedly so, 
you're now the you're the, you get the automatic bid. So a lot of things entered my mind about that. But let me start from the statistical perspective, and then I'll try to calm down and not be angry about this. You might say, well, they deserved it. Yes, but maybe no. And here's what I mean. Suppose you knew during the season that there was going to be no Ivy League tournament. Now, that's not true. But suppose you did know that. Suppose you're the second-place team and you say, what's the difference, first, second? I'm going to rest my players. I'm going to get them ready for this postseason tournament. You know what? Uh, John Smith is, is injured. I'm not going to play him during an injury game because you know what? We're in the dance. All we got to do is beat the number three. All we got to do then is we're going to beat the number one. Matter of fact, we're playing them at Harvard. Yale's number one. It's not even on their home court. We can do this. And then someone tells you after the season's over, Oh, um, Harvard, uh, Yale, Penn, Penn, whatever. I got some bad news for you. You know that regular season? That's going to count 100%. You're like, what? What? Why didn't you tell me this 10 games ago? I might have played my players differently. I might have played my rotation differently. I was building for the Ivy League tournament to hopefully go to the NSA tournament, and now you've changed the rules of the game. So it bothered me. Only It didn't bother me. Look, from a health perspective, It didn't bother me, and I'm going to say something in a second, but it did not bother me. They probably shouldn't have all of those fans in there. And Harvard, by the way, canceled classes, and they're sending all the students home. So it would be the peak of hypocrisy to have a basketball tournament in a 10,000-plus seat stadium when the students have been sent home. That doesn't make any sense to me. But it does question the fairness. And I'm not putting an asterisk next to Yale's Ivy League title this year, or if they go to the tournament, I hope they do well. But again, it could change the strategy and tactics during the season. Now, you're asked, a lot of people might wonder, so the Ivy League doesn't feel good about playing that, but they're fine with Yale going to the NCAA tournament and playing in front of fans? So I think that's something that I don't want to say has to be looked at, but will definitely be looked at some way or the other. And we'll see whether the NCAA tournament, there may actually be games played in many locations that there are actually no fans there. And that will be, I mean, that would be remarkably interesting. It would be interesting to see uh, how its effect is on the game. Does it affect the pace of the game? Does it affect the timeouts in the game? As I already mentioned, does it affect the number of fouls called in the game. It'll be fascinating to see kind of what role uh, that might play. But again, back to the Ivy League tournament, the reason why that concerned me, again, wasn't because it's unfair. Yale was the best regular season team. I just think, again, the other teams may have actually played it differently. So one last topic here on Morton Moneyball this week. And again, this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. Uh, some combination of myself, Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, and Adi Weiner are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Uh, and we're replayed throughout the week here on Sirius XM 132. Um, also, you can download our podcast, Morton Moneyball, iTunes, SoundCloud, and wherever you like to download kinds of things. Um, the last topic I was going to talk about uh, before maybe just spending a minute or two on over-unders was uh, they – a recent ranking came up of the top MLB players, and it shocked me a little bit. Um, not who was number one, being Mike Trout. What shocked me was that apparently he's been number one in war for the last seven years, but the, that the second and third players were pitchers, Garrett Cole and Jacob deGrom. Um, 
Obviously, I'm as a Yankee fan, I'm, I would be happy if, if Garrett Cole turns out to be the second most valuable player in the MLB this season. DeGrom, of course, is the poster child for advanced analytics because his win-loss record isn't that has not been that fantastic, but his advanced analytics has. I think it just reminded me how far we've come when advanced analytics now is even helping Yossay who are the top players in the league, where you could look at the historical win-loss record, Jacob deGrom wouldn't be there. So that's kind of been interesting for me. So last but not least, we have a minute or two left. Let's do our over-under segment. It's Wharton Moneyball's over-under. So this is normally the time where if Cade's in the host seat, he calls on me, but this time I get to call on myself. Um, A few actually relate to some topics we already talked about. So um, the first one given to me was 204 wins for the Dodgers and Yankees combined. And now where did that number come from? Well, I told you earlier in the show. The Yankees are predicted a 102.5. The Dodgers won a 1.5. You sum that up, it's 204. They had 209 last year. I'm going the under. Um, I think, as I mentioned to you, I'm confident, but who knows, one of them at least will be under. Of course, if I thought they would both be over, I have to pick the over. I think at least one of them will be under, possibly markedly so. And how, what is the upper bound? That's another reason why this one's a little unfair. I mean, it's not unfair. I could put down anything I want here. Um, but one of them's not winning 110. It's just not happening. And I don't think it's happening. And so maybe one of them gets to 103, 104. Well, that means the other one only has to be two or three under to make it happen. So I, I'm going the under on 204. Um, here's another one. Um, 9.5 Sixers home wins the rest of the year. 9.5 the rest of the year? They've won 10 so far this year. Is this a trick question? I got it. Home wins. Oh, home wins. Sorry, home wins the rest of the year. Oh, different. Thank you, Matt. Home wins. Uh, they've got the Hornets, the Bucks, the Magic. Let me, do, let me do them each. Hornets, win. Bucks, loss. Magic, win. Rockets, I don't like the matchup. Loss. Trailblazers, win. Suns, win. Hawks, win. Raptors, loss. So they're under. They're, there's no way the Sixers are winning nine and a half games at home more this year. No. I'm going the under. And by the way, I'm also integrating into this the fact that, you know, Embiid and Simmons are still not playing. And I don't know when they're going to be playing. Now, what's interesting, and Matt Datz, my producer, put this on our sheet. What's interesting about the Sixers without Simmons and Embiid is they've been scoring a lot more points, moving the ball more, getting more assists, shooting better, not surprisingly, from the three-point line because they have to. I'm not suggesting they're a better team but I am suggesting they're a better offensive team. And last but not least, 1.5 Lakers NBA Finals wins. Well, of course, they have to make the finals to have any NBA Finals wins. So I have to go the under because, number one, um, I don't. I, I, they can't be more than 50% to make the finals. They just can't be. I mean, the, 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 the Clippers could beat them. The Rockets could beat them. You know, maybe somebody, you know, LeBron could get injured, and then they have zero chance of making the finals. So I, I'm taking the under. Well, this has been a unique two hours of Wharton Moneyball, meaning it's been me, Eric Bradlow, for all two hours. Um, I want to thank my guests here during the middle hour of the show. I'd like to thank our producer, Matt Datz, who has kept me on the straight and narrow and given me lots of content to talk to about. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Zach Drapkin. I'd like to thank our first-time sound engineer for the show, uh, Chris Tooks, and of course supervised by Dion Simpkins. So this has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball. Between now and next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics. We'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball. <laughs>